Hello, this is now the fourth lecture in a series that I am calling Seedology. If you have stuck with me through the first three segments, then congratulations to you. There actually is a method to the madness, although some people would argue that there is madness to my method. The first three segments of this series were dedicated to demonstrating the Old Testament seedology, the tracing of the seed. And really all I want you to come away with at this point is that the very original declaration of the Abrahamic Covenant had both physical and spiritual aspects to it. Those promises were passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob And then Jacob divided the physical and the spiritual promises. He gave the physical promise, the right of firstborn, the land promise, everything that that entails. He gave that all to Ephraim. Meanwhile, Judah prevailed over his brothers because Jacob said that it was through the tribe of Judah that Shiloh was going to come. So the spiritual aspect of the promise went to Judah. The genealogies in the Old Testament then continue tracing the seed of Judah all the way to Jesse and to David and to the Davidic covenant. And then that's why the New Testament starts with a couple of genealogies demonstrating that both Joseph and Mary can trace their genealogy all the way back to Abraham and in Luke's case, all the way back to Adam. But that genealogical record goes through Judah not through Ephraim. Ephraim, meanwhile, has not been in the land of Canaan, the land that he has promised in perpetuity, a forever promise, an unconditional promise given by God, and yet they have not been in that land ever since the Assyrian captivity. So that's a very long time for them to not be in their land. So now let me pose a question with all of that background. Can we say that the spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant has actually come true? I think the answer is obviously yes, because the coming of Christ is the blessing through whom all of the families, all the tribes, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Not just Israelites, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, all the families of the earth through Christ. And certainly we see plenty of argumentation in the New Testament that proves that point. So we would have to say it's an unqualified yes that the spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant have come true, are coming true, will continue to come true. And based on that knowledge, and based on the fact that the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant, Can we also expect the physical aspects to come true? I argue, yes, of course we can. Otherwise, God has failed, or God has lied, or God is capricious. And I don't think it is necessary to spiritualize what God initially made very physical. He's going to accomplish the physical aspects of the Abrahamic covenant in a very physical way because he knows what he's talking about and he knows what he's doing. Now, the prophets of the Old Testament, as well as the prophets of the New Testament, still talk about a time to come, a kingdom to come, 
that even Jesus said, pray to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have not seen that physical kingdom yet. Daniel, Ezekiel, the book of Revelation all tell us that there is a series, a succession of earthly physical kingdoms in the Middle East that are finally destroyed, finally crushed, when God himself sets up his kingdom that will never be destroyed, which kingdom he gives to his son. That kingdom has not happened yet. It is a very physical kingdom. It's a very real kingdom. And like I said, Old or New Testament, it is still predicted in a future sense that it's coming. When that kingdom comes, that gives God plenty of time to establish Israel back in their own land. And again, the Old Testament prophets all say that that's going to happen. They speak with one voice talking about God's restoration, regathering of Israel from all the places that he has scattered them and planting them back in their own land, never to be moved again. So based on all that, based on what the prophets have said, and based on the veracity of those prophets so far, I have to conclude that God is going to establish the kingdom with David's greater son sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. After all, Jesus did say, when I sit on my glorious throne, you 12, my apostles, will sit on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. So then the tribes of Israel must be regathered in order for that promise from Jesus to actually take place. And they'll be regathered in the whole of the land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Ephraim. And the demonstrable proof of the veracity of that promise is the fact that Huge swaths of the Abrahamic covenant have, in fact, come true. Like the fact that the seedology of the Old Testament proves and demonstrates that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, the same way that Jacob declared. So since that has come true, very genuinely, very literally, Jesus did come from the tribe of Judah, and he is the one through whom these spiritual promises of the Abrahamic covenant are coming to their fruition. Given all of that, it is impossible for me to think that then God is going to change his mind and say, oh, but those physical things, like the land, like the regathering of Israel, like the kingdom to come, nah, never mind those. I, I did half of it, and that's good for me. No, I contend that God is faithful to every promise and every covenant that he has ever made, and that is why it is so important to recognize the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant. There's no way for human beings to mess it up. God has declared it, he's promised it, and it is based in the unchanging nature of God himself. So, I am certainly looking forward to and expecting the physical kingdom to come, and the physical restoration of Israel in the land from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates, because that's what the original promise included, and God has already demonstrated that he is keeping that promise based on the fact that Jesus Christ himself did appear in time in history as a descendant of Judah. 
So now, what is this particular lecture going to be about? Well, in the New Testament, in Paul's great theological treatises, in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians, he mentions the Abrahamic covenant. He mentions Old Testament seedology in order to prove the correctness of his theology of grace rather than law. He brings up Abraham a lot and in that process begins using the language of seedology, of Abraham's seed, and argues for its spiritual reality. And very frequently within the Christian church, this anti-Semitism rises up where people say, well, see, Paul is arguing for the spiritual theological satisfaction of the Abrahamic covenant, so therefore the physical aspect of it that is promised specifically to Israel, that's not going to be kept because now the superior aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, the spiritual aspects, have been satisfied. But that's not what Paul argues at all. Instead, he is arguing that the seed of Abraham is everyone who has faith like Abraham. Abraham is the father of the faithful, therefore, completely in league and in line with the original Abrahamic covenant. But Paul never argues that that reality does away with or negates the original promise of physical land, physical restoration, and physical kingdom for Israel nationally. So much of the church argues just the opposite of Paul, and they make Paul say things that he never actually said, and they draw conclusions that Paul never actually drew. So let's take some time in this lecture to look at a couple of those passages and see what it is that Paul is and is not arguing as far as seedology is concerned. Let's start this exploration of Pauline theology based on his knowledge of seedology in Romans chapter 4. Now, I am going to read the great majority of Romans chapter 4, and the reason I'm going to do that is because I like to let Paul make his argument. So many questionable conclusions that preachers and commentators draw are the result of taking verses completely out of their context and then cramming them together with other verses from other letters that are making completely other arguments. And so then they draw conclusions that Paul simply never drew. I would rather read big segments of the Bible so that the original writers can make their argument and we bring our thinking in line with what the original writers have actually said. So chapter 4 of the book of Romans starts, What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Okay, so not only does Paul want to talk about Abraham, but he also admits, being a Jew, being a Benjamite, he admits that Abraham is his forefather after the flesh. He's able to trace the seed, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the sons of Jacob, and he is a descendant of Benjamin. So he knows his genealogy, and he knows that Abraham is his physical father. 
And now he's going to base his theology of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on what actually happened to Abraham, his physical father. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Quoting David, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. So Paul's argument about the inclusion of Gentiles into salvation through the Redeemer of Israel, through the finished redemptive work of Israel's Messiah, who was predicted by all of their prophets, Paul is basing his entire argument for Gentile inclusion on the fact that Abraham himself was uncircumcised when he had faith, as we've already heard, in what God told him, you're going to have a son, your seed is going to be as numerous as the sands, as the stars. Abraham believed God. And God counted that to him for righteousness, but Abraham was not circumcised yet. Now, physical circumcision was one of the great dividing lines between the Jews and all the other nations of the earth. Their circumcision in the flesh identified them as physical descendants of Abraham because they were continuing to keep the circumcision covenant that was made between God and Abraham. Paul's argument is... When Abraham received the promise from God of righteousness in exchange for his faith, was he circumcised at the time? And the answer historically is no. So therefore, Paul concludes, even the uncircumcised, even those who are not physical descendants of Abraham, can share in Abraham's faith. And that faith in what God has said, that faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that faith will be counted, even to the Gentiles, as righteousness. So picking up again at verse 10, how was it reckoned? How was that righteousness reckoned to Abraham? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. 
and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness may be reckoned to them. And that's where so many people stop. And they say, well, see, the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic faith is a promise to the Gentiles. But then what about those who have been circumcised? What about the Jews who have also come to faith in Jesus? What about them? That's what Paul answers in verse 12 and says that Abraham is also the father of the circumcision to those who are not only of the physical circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Abraham is the father of the faithful, those people, Jew or Gentile, who have similar faith to him. Those people are going to receive righteousness as a gift, but that does not eliminate the fact that he is the father of the circumcision as well. He's the physical father of the circumcision, as Paul just said, but the spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through his seed is being completed in the fact that faith in Jesus Christ to the circumcised or the uncircumcised results in righteousness for them the same way that Abraham demonstrated that. So you can't discount the uncircumcised when it comes to faith, but you also cannot discount the circumcised who also have faith in Christ. He is the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was yet uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul is talking very specifically about the reality of the Abrahamic covenant. That is what he calls the promise to Abraham. And then if you look at the details, it's obvious. The promise, the covenant to Abraham the unconditional covenant to Abraham, was that he and his descendants would be heir to the world, not just to his physical descendants, but also to all the families of the earth. And that promise, Paul is arguing, was not made by the law of Moses, but it was a promise made by God through the righteousness that comes from faith. And then Paul argues For if those who are of the law are the heirs of that Abrahamic covenant, then faith is made void and the promise itself is nullified. Do you hear what Paul is arguing? Righteousness is a result of faith, not a result of the law. And if actual righteousness had come by the law, then that negates the Abrahamic covenant because the spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant were that the seed of Abraham was going to be a spiritual blessing to all the families of the earth, and righteousness would be imputed to them through faith. 
But if instead of faith, you can accomplish all of that through your law-keeping, well, then that negates the original Abrahamic covenant. For this reason, says verse 16, it is by faith, so that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise, again, what promise is he referring to? He's referring to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise God made to Abraham, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are under the law, that would be the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he is truly, genuinely, the physical father of all the descendants of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the tribes of Israel. They can trace their lineage right back to Abraham in a very physical, genealogical way. But he is also the father. He is also the first man in the Bible. To believe God and have God count that to him as righteousness, therefore, Paul picks that up and says, whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we are direct descendants physically or just descendants spiritually, we are satisfying the Abrahamic covenant in that we are being blessed the way Father Abraham was blessed. In order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of transgressions and was raised for our justification. So Paul's entire argument about the inclusion of Gentiles into eternal redemption through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that whole argument is based in his knowledge of the Abrahamic covenant and the seedology that is part and parcel of that. The better you know your Old Testament covenants and seedology, the better you're going to understand Pauline New Testament arguments. So go over to chapter 9 for just a moment. Same book, Book of Romans, 
In verse 1 of chapter 9, Paul writes, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I would wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. What did Paul just do? He just traced what I keep calling seedology. It is simply a fact of history that every covenant you find in the Bible belongs primarily to Israel. In the new covenant, there is Gentile inclusion, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that the new covenant belongs to Israel. In fact, when you read Jeremiah 31, the first citation of the new covenant, it says that it is for the house of Israel, those are the northern tribes, and the house of Judah. When the writer of Hebrews cites that new covenant, which is the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament imported into the New Testament, it is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews and he cites the new covenant exactly the same, to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. There's just no way to get around, if you know your theology, there is no way to get around the fact that even the new covenant is promised primarily to Israel. Yes, Gentiles are included through grace, through faith, but the covenants belong to Israel. That's Paul's argument. The Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises which are the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Those promises that belong to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the Abrahamic covenant, including the very physical land aspect of the covenant. That all belongs to to Israel, just as the new covenant belongs to the northern tribes, the house of Israel, and the southern tribes, the house of Judah. In other words, the new covenant is promised to Ephraim, even though they haven't been in their land ever since the Assyrian captivity. And Paul knows all of that. The covenants, the law, the temple, the promises, all belong to the fathers. And from whom? the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. That is just shorthand for all the seedology that I have been looking at in these first three lectures. But, says verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Now, it is very, very typical for commentators and preachers at this point to make too much of the phrase, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, and argue that what Paul is saying is that Gentiles are now Israel, and the Gentile church is now Israel. 
because they're not all Israel who are of Israel. But what Paul is actually saying contextually is just because they are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, that doesn't mean that they are necessarily counted as the seed. This is why it's so important to read Paul's whole argument, because now he's going to explain that. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But, quoting here from the book of Genesis, through Isaac your seed will be called. Okay, so why is that so important? Well, if you know your Old Testament seedology, you know that Abraham had another child, Ishmael. And the seed did not go through Ishmael. But Ishmael was a child of Abraham. But that genealogical fact did not qualify the descendants of Ishmael as the chosen seed. And from there, Paul continues, that is, it is not the children of the flesh, those would be the Ishmaelites, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as the seed. That's why it's so important to remember that Abraham and Sarah were beyond childbearing years so that this child Isaac is referred to as the child of promise. And it is through that child that the seed is reckoned. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as the seed. For this is that word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Paul is laying it out so specifically. It's so obvious what he's talking about. And he's obviously not saying the church is now Israel. What he's making clear is that God has designated a particular line, a particular lineage within Israel. And that's why not all Israel is Israel. Verse 10, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose through his choice, through his election might stand, and not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, it's perfectly valid that people will take this section of Romans 9 and those kinds of statements and use them as evidence of God's election, that God chooses and elects. But even as Paul is demonstrating God's election, he's showing it within Israel's history. He's demonstrating that the seed went through Jacob, and Jacob God loved, Esau God hated. So what Paul is doing is narrowing the seed generation to generation in order to demonstrate that even within Israel, there is the chosen elect remnant seed, and then there are other people groups who, even though they are descendants of Abraham or Isaac, are nevertheless not counted as the seed. Therefore, not all Israel is of Israel. 
Okay, so what's my point in going through all that? To demonstrate yet again that in order to really understand your New Testament, it is necessary to understand the genealogical information that's in the Old Testament, at least to the degree where you can follow Pauline arguments. If you don't know Old Testament seedology, I'll call it that again, if you don't know your Old Testament lineages and genealogies, then you'll end up reading Romans 9 and reading Not All Israel is Israel, and then you'll make up something in your mind, something in your imagination, and end up saying that what Paul is declaring is that the church is Israel, which is nothing like what he is saying. He's not even talking about the church at this point. He told us right at the beginning of this argument that his focus is Israel, his brethren after the flesh. But then he's demonstrating that God is still keeping his covenant and his promises to those people. But he's doing it within the seed, the descendants that he has chosen. Proper seedology, I argue, leads to a proper theology and a proper reading of Pauline argumentation. All right, so now go to the book of Galatians. We're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 3. And here we're going to see different group of people, not the Romans, but to the church at Galatia, a largely Gentile church that has been founded and is also partially populated with Jews. And so Paul is returning to one of his favorite themes, that salvation is a result of God's grace through faith. But he's going to make that point by reaching right back to what we already know about the Abrahamic covenant the Abrahamic promise, and imputed righteousness in exchange for faith. So this is a theme that Paul preached and wrote about to churches in vastly different areas, but he expected it to be fundamental to what the church believed and taught. Chapter 3 begins, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Let me quickly add, every covenant in the Bible has a sign, a token of that covenant. The sign or the token of the new covenant is the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's first fundamental argument is, now you've received the Holy Spirit, that promise that is inherent in the new covenant. Did you get that through the law, or did you get that through faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit, and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Therefore, 
be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So what is Paul saying? You could very easily take that verse out of context and say, see, now the church is the newer, better Israel, and we are even the descendants of Abraham, so therefore the Jews who didn't keep the law not only fall under God's condemnation, but he also does not reckon them any longer as the seed of Abraham. The Gentiles who by faith in Christ come into the new covenant have now superseded the natural seed, but that's not Paul's argument at all. What he's going to prove in verse 8 is that this is in keeping with that spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't do away with any of the promises that God made to the natural seed of Israel. It is simply a fulfillment of what the Abrahamic covenant has always included from the very beginning. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. And where do we find that statement? In the Abrahamic covenant. Paul is arguing that the Abrahamic covenant has always included that Gentiles were going to be added in to that unconditional promise through faith in what God has said. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand. That entire phrase is just the single Greek word pro And all it means is that good news was preached to him. It doesn't mean that every element of what we know as the gospel was necessarily preached to Abraham. It doesn't mean that Abraham understood the sacrifice of Christ and placed his faith in Christ and his finished work. Instead, what Abraham believed was that through his seed, through his descendants, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed and that his own seed, his own lineage, was going to be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. But it would be anachronistic to take our current modern understanding of what constitutes the gospel and then push that backwards in time and say that Abraham believed and understood all of that. What Abraham believed was what God had said to him. You're going to receive this land. You're going to have a child. Through your seed, through your progeny, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. So we have to be careful not to become genuinely anachronistic in our theology and push New Covenant, New Testament ideas back into the Old Testament and claim that somehow the forefathers knew it and understood it the same way that we do now. So Abraham had good news preached to him beforehand, and that good news was, all the nations shall be blessed in you. Verse 9 says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul finds the basis and foundations for so much of his theology in Old Testament Abrahamic promises and argues that the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith is a direct result of this promise that is made to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And he says it plainly in verse 14 that through Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Gentile inclusion is a result of the Abrahamic covenant so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, so that we might receive the down payment, the surety, the seal of our salvation, the Holy Spirit, who is the token and the sign of the new covenant. He is given to us as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, which exchange of righteousness for faith is demonstrated all the way back at Abraham. But Paul's not done utilizing Abraham to make that point. Verse 15 says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So he's saying even among men, even among humans, when we form a covenant together, nobody after the fact gets to change the deal. And so with the covenant that God himself made, the unchangeable God, he passed through the sacrificial animals, the divided animals, all by himself, and you can't change that covenant. You can't alter that covenant. You can't change the terms of that covenant, because even if it's a covenant made by human beings, you can't do that. How much less could you do that in a covenant made by God with himself? Verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Seedology again. The seed, the descendants of Abraham, are the recipients of the promises. What promises? The promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's talking about. Not only the spiritual side of the covenant, but the physical side of the covenant, Paul says, still belongs to the seed of Abraham. And the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. There, Paul just summed up what I've been trying to say for four lectures. The seed from Adam to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, in this case, to Jesse, to David, finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. He is the 
seed through whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Verse 17, what I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. What did Paul just say? That the introduction of the law and then the doing away of the law in Jesus Christ does not in any way invalidate any aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, Paul started by saying, even if it's two men who make a covenant, you can't change it or alter it after the fact. God's covenant is an unconditional covenant, and it cannot be changed after the fact. The coming of the law and then the eradication of the law does not change the physical or the spiritual facts of the Abrahamic covenant. Which covenant is passed down to his natural seed and to his spiritual seed? And among the spiritual seed, even Gentiles are introduced into this covenant through faith in the finished work of Christ. Verse 18, For if the inheritance was based on the law, what inheritance? The inheritance that was given to the forefathers the inheritance that was given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to Ephraim and to Judah, that inheritance is not based on law-keeping. Why is this so very important? Well, for one, the Gentile church was being encouraged to keep portions of the law, and that's what Paul is arguing against here, that the Judaizers had come to Galatia and were encouraging them to keep the law. But the law itself historically belonged to Israel, national Israel, all 12 tribes, the circumcised. They were under obligation to keep the law. But the inheritance that is promised to them is not by the law. It's by promise. And I want to really drive this point home. Because everyone I have ever heard state that God is done with Israel and is not going to keep the land promise, the physical aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, every one of them has failed to understand and rightly divide the physical promise, which went to Ephraim, and the spiritual promise that came through Judah. But then secondarily, what they argue is, Israel was obligated to keep the law, and they failed in that enterprise, and it is because of their failure to keep the law that God has cast them off entirely, never to restore them, never to keep those promises. So, yeah, God promised all these things to Israel in the Old Testament, but he didn't mean it, and it's their fault, because after all, they didn't keep the law. So God is capricious. God can make promises to a particular group of people and then just simply not keep those promises. I don't know how you preach that kind of a God and then can have any sort of confidence in your own salvation because God could make you all kinds of promises and then change his mind and then decide he didn't mean you, he meant some other group of people. He didn't mean physical Israel. He didn't mean descendants physically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He meant the church of Gentiles later. Well, I don't know any God like that, nor do you find that God in the pages of Holy Writ. 
And very, very importantly, Paul concludes that the inheritance is not based on the law. It's based on a promise. And God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. It's a covenant, an unbreakable covenant, a covenant that works on into perpetuity, a forever covenant. And it's based on the promise and character of God. It's not based on law-keeping. Therefore, since it is unconditional, Israel's failure to live up to the law does not in any way negate the Abrahamic covenant. As demonstrated by the fact that the spiritual aspects of the covenant are in play right now, right here. As Gentiles are being introduced to faith in Christ, that is the outgrowth of promises God made to Abraham. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that since God is keeping the spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, he has done away with, he has foregone the physical promises that belong to Israel. That conclusion is something that men just make up and then impose on the Bible. Paul's argument here is, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So law-keeping is not the basis or the foundation on which God is keeping his forever unconditional covenants and promises. Paul knew that. Paul states that. It's right there in the Bible, but there sure is an awful lot of contrary and errant theology that says quite the opposite. Verse 19, why the law then? Paul says it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. What promise? That through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Okay, one last section and then we'll close up this series. I'm in Galatians chapter 4, same letter. And I'm going to start reading at verse 21 because once again, Paul is going to reach back to what we already know from our earlier lectures about how God picks and chooses and designates the seed. Chapter 4, verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through a promise. That's right. Abraham went into the tent with Hagar. That was a fleshly activity, and they produced a child. But God said, your seed is not going to be reckoned through Ishmael, but through a child that you and Sarah are going to have even though that seems like an impossibility because he is the child of a promise. That promise was made by God, therefore the promise is valid and good. And I would argue that since we know it is a historic fact that Isaac was indeed born to Abraham and Sarah, that is the first very physical demonstration 
that God is in the enterprise of keeping that unconditional promise. And every aspect of that unconditional promise has to come true and will based on God's history of keeping that covenant. Anyway, Paul says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds with the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But, as at that time, he who is born according to the flesh persecutes him who was born according to the Spirit. And so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, and the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. That is Pauline seedology. Paul demonstrates that he is keenly aware of how God, from the very beginning, designated the direction in which the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were going to go. Now, very, very interestingly, looking at it in the largest overview, we saw frequently how God would state that the older would serve the younger. Through Isaac shall your seed be called. Isaac and Rebekah had twins, and while they were in the womb, it was told them, the older is going to serve the younger. Jacob God loved, Esau God hated. Jacob, when handing out blessings to his sons, didn't give the birthright blessing to Reuben, the firstborn. Instead, that birthright blessing went to the sons of Joseph. And we see that same pattern in the Bible. Paul refers repeatedly to the law as the Old Covenant. And then that covenant of salvation by grace through faith, that is called the new covenant. And that new covenant, according to everything we find in the book of Hebrews, is the newer, better covenant, based on newer, better promises. So God, in his astounding sovereignty, even while demonstrating his ability to choose and elect the direction that the seed goes, and stating that the older is going to give way to the younger, and then does that repeatedly in tracing the seed. Even down to David, David's older brothers were passed over. David was the younger. But it was through him that God designated a dynasty, a house. And David's greater son was going to sit on the throne of Israel. The pattern is very consistent and that pattern even leads us to the recognition that the new covenant supersedes the old covenant. The older serves the younger. So anyway, all of that collectively 
is what I refer to as biblical seedology. And if you stuck with me through each of these lectures, I hope that you found them helpful, but I hope that they encouraged you to look more closely at the genealogical record of the Old Testament, but also to recognize that these things that we read in the New Testament, including Pauline theology of law versus grace, is all based in promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and that those promises were then split between the physical and the spiritual, between Ephraim and Judah, and the spiritual promise is being kept right here in front of us today, which I see as a firm indication that God intends to keep the physical aspect as well, which the Bible states over and over is indeed going to happen in the regathering of Israel, in the establishment again of the nation, and in Jesus Christ setting up his kingdom that will never be defeated. That's the big overview of the biblical story. I just call it seedology. So thanks for listening. Thank you for letting me be a part of the 2022 Sovereign Grace Conference in Texas. And I do look forward to the day when our paths cross again, God willing. But if I don't get to see you here on planet Earth, I'll look for you around the throne. Because our glorious future is sure and secure and unchanging because of the promises and the covenants of an unchanging God. And we can have faith and confidence that he is going to finish the work that he has begun. God bless you, and my love goes with you. Bye.